K409, here we go with our podcast on pulmonary physiology. We're going to jump right in and start by doing a quick review of pulmonary structure and function. And just to give you an idea of, you know, a lot of what we're going to end up talking about here are lung volumes. And for a typical individual, a total lung volume, total lung capacity would be around five liters, maybe six liters, somewhere in there is a pretty good estimate. And they're generally in healthy people. If you're diseased, that can cut down on lung volume. But in healthy people, generally lung volume is determined by three variables. By far the most important is height. The taller you are, the bigger your lung volume is. Uh, the second thing in healthy people that determines lung volume is your age. As you age, your uh, lungs tend to get a little more fibrotic, and so your lung volume does decrease slightly. And then the third thing is, is sex. And if we look and compare men and women of the same height and the same age, men have slightly larger lung volumes than women do. Now, when we talk about lung volumes, we usually talk about static and dynamic lung volumes. Static lung volumes are... Uh, the volumes in your lung that don't change. That's why they're called static. They typically stay the same. Uh, again, as you age, you can see small changes. If you got diseased, you would see changes. But in general, these things don't change with training, don't change uh, very much over time at all. Uh, there's a number of different measures that we can get from doing what's called uh, a measure of your pulmonary function or using a spirometer. And officially, a spirometer is this device where you breathe out through a tube that goes into a chamber that's a, like a metal bell that sits upside down on a column of water. And as you breathe out, you kind of fill that space under the bell and the bell rises up and moves down and it can draw a tracing on a paper. Uh, now we do them mostly through electronic devices uh, that can give you the same sort of digital readout. Uh, but some measures to define, uh, TLC stands for total lung capacity. Again, in most people, five liters for maybe females, six liters for males is roughly about uh, a typical, you know, individual size who's young, healthy, uh, and of average height. Uh, within TLC, it's made up of a couple different components. TLC is equal to VC, which is vital capacity plus RV, which is residual volume. So your vital capacity, that is the volume of your lung from a normal inspiration, maximally filling your lungs, to a normal expiration, maximally emptying your lungs. And even when you do that maneuver and push all the air out of your lungs that you can, you can't squeeze all the air out. There's going to be some volume of air left in the lung, otherwise you'd have a collapsed lung, uh, and that would not be good. So the amount of air that's left in your lung at the end of a maximal expiration, that is called residual volume. It's the only volume that we cannot measure using a spirometer. We have to use a special technique uh, that you'll uh, see when you get to the lung volume lab. Uh, we use one called nitrogen dilution. Uh, there's also one called, or the nitrogen washout method. There's one called helium dilution. Uh, you can also do it through what's called a body box, body body plethysmography. Uh, but again, residual volume is the only one you can't measure with a spirometer. 
Uh, there's other volumes called Inspiratory Reserve Volume, Expiratory Reserve Volume. Uh, those are, are more minor in consideration. Uh, there's also one called Tidal Volume, T-I-D-A-L, Tidal Volume, abbreviated TV. And tidal volume is just the volume of a normal breath in and out. At rest, your tidal volume is going to be small. During exercise, your tidal volume would be bigger. Those are static lung volumes. Dynamic lung volumes can change over time. They involve a, usually a time component with it. Uh, the most common one that we're concerned with is called FEV1. That is forced expiratory volume in one second. And the way you do this maneuver is you breathe in all the way maximum filling your lungs and then you push all the air out of your lungs as fast as you can and as hard as you can. And we measure how much air you can push out in one second. Now, that amount of air by itself doesn't tell you much. If I said I pushed out, you know, four and a half liters, that doesn't really tell you a whole lot. So what we do is we take that volume that you push out in one second and we divide it by your vital capacity and we get a percentage. So normal people can push out, if you don't have obstructive lung disease like asthma or COPD, you can normally push out at least 80% of your uh, vital capacity. You can push out within one second. If you have asthma, you get that kind of <laughs> sound and you have, you know, again, more obstructed airways. And so even when you're pushing air out as fast as you can, you can't get a lot of it out quickly. And so you might only be able to get 70% out or 60% out in one second. So 80% is the, is the cutoff uh, that we use clinically to determine whether you have asthma. There's also something called MVV, maximal voluntary ventilation. That's how much air you can move in and out of your lungs in one minute. Uh, we usually do it for either six seconds or 10 seconds and then multiply by a, a constant to get it up to a minute value. This kind of gives us an idea of capacity during maximal exercise. If we were trying to get an estimate of what your ventilation would be, we could do this MVV test uh, at rest. And then there's something called minute ventilation, abbreviated VE. And that's simply uh, the amount of air that you move in and out of your lungs in one minute. At rest, your minute ventilation might be about, oh, 10 liters a minute. During maximal exercise, it could be 150 to 200 liters a minute. And ventilation is made up of two components. There's frequency of breathing, the number of breaths you take per minute, and tidal volume, which is uh, the volume of a single breath. And so this is somewhat analogous to the relationship of cardiac output being equal to heart rate times stroke volume, same sort of concept. Uh, when we talk about um, ventilation and the mechanics of ventilation, uh, really what we're talking about is how do we create changes in pressure? Because air is going to move based on changes in pressure. So air is going to move in and out of the lungs because mechanically you're able to change pressure. And how we do that is by contracting the diaphragm, which pulls it down. And we can also contract the intercostal muscles, which kind of lift the rib cage up. Both of those actions are going to cause um, the volume of the inner pleural space, in other words, from your throat to your diaphragm and around your rib cage, that volume expands and gets bigger when you contract the diaphragm and pull it down, when you contract the intercostal muscles and lift the rib cage. 
And when you do that, if you remember uh, Boyle's Law from your kind of high school or introductory chemistry 101, uh, Boyle's Law is P1V1 equals P2V2. So if I have an initial state with initial pressure and volume and a secondary state where I increase the volume, what's going to happen is the pressure is going to have to go down. So as I increase the volume of that inner pleural space, the pressure goes down and you end up having a higher pressure outside in the atmosphere than you do in the lungs, so air goes into your lung. So you inspire, contracting those muscles, increases the volume of your thoracic space, causes the pressure to drop inside the, inside the lung. We call that the intrapulmonic pressure drops. Uh, and because atmospheric pressure outside is higher, air will move into your mouth, through your windpipe, and into your lungs. Uh, to breathe out, it's the same thing, but all you do is you relax the diaphragm and you relax the intercostal muscles. That diaphragm then moves up, and by doing that, it compresses the lungs, and you're going to have a higher pressure inside the lungs than inside the airway, and as long as your throat is open, then air is going to move out of your lungs. So inspiration is always active. And what I mean by that is it requires energy. You have to contract your diaphragm or your intercostal muscles or both to inspire. Expiration is mostly passive, meaning you just relax. So you can try this, take a big breath in and then just relax. And you're, you naturally go down to what's called FRC, functional residual capacity, meaning that diaphragm just relaxes and air naturally goes out. You don't have to exert any energy. You can be active in expiration. You can contract your abdominal muscles to really try to compress your thoracic space and push air out if you wanted to. Now, if we look at ventilation during exercise, uh, it follows a unique pattern. And that is, as I increase running speed or if I increase workload, ventilation is going to increase linearly up to a point and that point we call the ventilatory threshold, beyond that, as I increase workload or if I increase running pace and run faster, I see a steeper rise in ventilation occur. So it, it looks kind of, oh, um, kind of like a J, but if you imagine a straight line and then a steeper line uh, intersecting it. And that's called the ventilatory threshold. That is the response of ventilation during exercise. So. At low workloads, as you increase um, the workload, we call that hyperpnea. That's where ventilation increases just to match metabolic need. And then at the high workloads, after the ventilatory threshold, where you see the steep rise in ventilation, that is due, or that's called hyperventilation. And that is due to uh, a response of increasing of numbers of hydrogen ions that stimulate the respiratory center, as well as when you uh, buffer those hydrogen ions with lactic acid, you produce, or if you buffer the hydrogen ions with bicarbonate, you produce uh, CO2, we call that non-metabolic CO2, and that stimulates the respiratory center to breathe more. So you have ventilation that is driven by normal metabolic function, and then you have extra ventilation that's being driven by these chemical stimuli to breathe. Um, and so the ventilatory threshold normally corresponds very well with the lactate threshold. As you see this big increase in lactic acid, you see a big increase in hydrogen ions, that stimulates the respiratory center, 
and you start hyperventilating and breathe more. Now, what about tidal volume and frequency of breathing? Which one do you rely more on to increase ventilation during exercise? Well, it turns out at uh, low and moderate workloads, you primarily increase ventilation by increasing tidal volume more than you increase frequency of breathing. An example I always give is, let's say you just start exercising, I just start jogging uh, or something like that. I'm going to breathe more, but I don't start off by <laughs> huffing and puffing really fast. I just take deeper breaths. Now, as the workload increases, as I get up to close to maximal exercise, uh, there's not a lot of time to really fill my lungs in between, in between breaths. So the only time, the only way that I can really increase ventilation is simply to breathe more. And so at maximal workload, you see frequency of breathing kind of take this big upslope, this big spike um, and increase. All right, let's uh, shift gears from that and start talking about gas exchange and how we transport gases within the body. And we need to start off by talking about something called partial pressure. And partial pressure is related, if you're familiar with Dalton's Law, uh, that's where we get it from. So the air that you breathe is a mixture of gases. And each of the gases within the atmosphere or within a, a solution or whatever it may be, uh, they're all going to exert a pressure in, term, in proportion to its fraction in the gas mixture. And so if we were to add up all of the individual partial pressures of all the gases uh, within a gas mixture within the air, it would equal the total pressure. And if we're talking about the air, if we add up all the partial pressures of the different gases in room air, it would equal the barometric pressure. So as an example, the most abundant gas in room air is nitrogen. Uh, it's about 79% nitrogen. And let's say we were at sea level, atmospheric pressure would be 760 millimeters of mercury. I could take that 760, multiply it by that fractional gas concentration of 79%, and I get a partial pressure of right about 600 millimeters of mercury. You know, the next most abundant gas is oxygen, so I can do the same thing. 760 millimeters of mercury is the barometric pressure. The fractional gas concentration of oxygen is 20.93%. Uh, and it turns out the partial pressure is 159.1 millimeters of mercury. You could do that for all the gases in the atmosphere. And if you added up all the partial pressures, it would end up equaling, if you were at sea level, the barometric pressure of 760 millimeters of mercury. Now, when you go to altitude, what changes is not the fractional gas concentration. Those actually stay the same. What changes is the barometric pressure. It gets lower. And so when you multiply a lower barometric pressure times that fractional gas concentration, you get a lower partial pressure. And when you have lower pressures, that's going to affect diffusion from the lung into the blood, let's say, or from the blood into the mitochondria. And that's one of the reasons why when you go to altitude, your maximal aerobic capacity goes down. Your VO2 max is lower at altitude because of this drop in partial pressure of oxygen due to a drop in barometric pressure. Um, now, how are these gases going to move within your body? They have to move in only one of two ways. There's one called bulk flow, which is active and requires energy. And there's one called diffusion, which is passive. Bulk flow is basically you either change a pressure or there's something that attaches and transports uh, the gas in that way. 
Diffusion is passive, meaning that gases are going to move from areas of high concentration to low concentration just naturally in their normal random movement. So gases will diffuse from areas of high pressure uh, to areas of lower pressure until the gases get into equilibrium. And so what that means is when you're in the lung, the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveoli is higher than it is in the blood. And so oxygen will naturally diffuse from the alveoli across the alveolar membrane, across the uh, capillary membrane into the blood until eventually it binds to hemoglobin. At that point, it undergoes what we would call bulk flow because with the oxygen attached to hemoglobin, the heart is actually going to pump the blood and it's going to transport it uh, to the capillaries. So that's an example of bulk flow. Another example of bulk flow is inhalation because you're going to contract the diaphragm, change the pressure, and gas is going to move uh, mainly through bulk flow until you get to the small airways and then it moves by diffusion. And then once you get into the capillary, you're going to go through diffusion again because the partial pressure of oxygen in the capillary is higher than it is in the mitochondria. So the gas oxygen will naturally diffuse along that pressure and concentration gradient. So that's oxygen. CO2 does exactly the opposite. CO2 is higher in concentration uh, within the skeletal muscle than it is in the arterial or venous blood. So it's going to diffuse following its concentration gradient, be transported actively back to uh, the lung and then through the blood. And then once it reaches the lung, partial pressure is higher in the uh, pulmonary artery than it is in the alveoli. And so the CO2 is going to diffuse out to the lung following that diffusion gradient. Now, what governs diffusion is called Fick's Law of Diffusion. Now, don't be confused. Fick's Law of Diffusion is not the same as the Fick equation that relates VO2 to cardiac output and AVO2 difference. Fick's Law of Diffusion is different. Fick's Law of Diffusion says that uh, the diffusion rate of a gas is dependent on several factors. The pressure gradient, the solubility of the gas in body fluids, the distance which the gas must diffuse, which is going to be related primarily to the thickness of any membrane that the gas has to diffuse to. Uh, the molecular weight of the gas is another factor. And, and the reason molecular weight is, is if you think about gas diffusing through a membrane, uh, there are you know kind of tiny holes in the membrane. And the bigger the molecule is, you need a bigger hole and there may be fewer of them for it diffusers. So a smaller molecular weight would diffuse more easily. So the pressure gradient, obviously we can, is going to change, for example, when you're at altitude or when you're at sea level. If you're at sea level, you have a higher oxygen pressure gradient from the lung to the blood. When you're at altitude, you have a lower oxygen gradient, pressure gradient uh, from the lung to the blood. So that's going to affect diffusion. So when you go to altitude, you are diffusion limited is what we would say. Uh, the thickness of the barrier is going to negatively affect diffusion. So when somebody gets pneumonia, for example, or has cystic fibrosis, their alveolar wall gets very thick. That's a barrier to diffusion. They get less oxygen diffusing through. That's one of the issues with people with COVID is that uh, their saturation drops precipitously due to this inflammation of their lung tissue. It causes a, a major problem. 
as far as diffusion goes, it uh, or solubility goes, it turns out that oxygen is not very soluble in water at all. Turns out CO2 is much more soluble, about 20 to 25 times more soluble uh, than oxygen is. So it's much easier to diffuse CO2, much more difficult uh, to diffuse oxygen. Uh, let's shift gears now and again talk about how you transport oxygen within the blood. And you can transport oxygen in the blood in two ways. Uh, one is you can actually dissolve a small amount of it in plasma. As I mentioned, oxygen is not very soluble, but a little bit of it does dissolve. You know, that's how uh, fish essentially breathe in the waters. Their gills are actually very good at pulling the very, very tiny amount of dissolved oxygen out of the water uh, and, and utilize that through their bloodstream. You can dissolve about 1% to 2% of all the oxygen you transport in the body is done uh, by dissolving the oxygen in plasma. The bulk of it, 98-99% of it, is going to be bound to hemoglobin. And you can bind four oxygen molecules to the iron portion of the hemoglobin molecule. So hemoglobin is kind of this protein. I always describe it like if you've ever done silly string and you shoot silly string out and it gets all over the grass and then you got to go pick it up. Imagine you kind of scoop it up and it's kind of like a ball of silly string. That's the way kind of a hemoglobin protein looks. Now imagine inside that ball of silly string you had four iron molecules uh, suspended in there and that's where the oxygen binds. Now how much oxygen binds to hemoglobin is called the percent hemoglobin saturation, oxyhemoglobin saturation. And it's not necessarily 100% uh, in people with disease or when you go to altitude, the blood can leave the lung with not all those binding sites filled. Normally in a typical person at rest, your, your oxyhemoglobin saturation is going to be 99%. But if you were diseased or at altitude, it could be in the low 90s or even in the 80s. Um, now how much oxygen does bind to hemoglobin is dependent on four factors. One of them is the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. And that is described by the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And you should remember, it's kind of that S-shaped curve. We call it a sigmoidal curve that is kind of um, a little bit flat at the very bottom. Then it gets really steep rise as PO2 goes up. And then as PO2 gets higher over about, oh, usually 60, 70, 80 millimeters of mercury, then it starts flattening off again. And even if you increase PO2, you're pretty much uh, flat and fully saturated. Uh, the other three things that affect how much oxygen binds to hemoglobin, one of them is the temperature of the blood. One of them is the pH level or the acidity of the blood. And the last one is something called the amount of 2,3-DPG in the blood. And 2,3-DPG is a byproduct of glycolysis. Um, for our purposes of this class, we're going to ignore that for now. It's kind of a minor effector of oxyhemoglobin saturation, so we're going um, to ignore that one. But temperature and pH can affect the shape of the curve, which we call the Bohr effect. And if you can picture this curve in your mind, this S-shaped curve, it can either shift to the right or it can shift to the left. And the way I always try to get people to think of it is to think of hemoglobin as being like a magnet for oxygen, an electromagnet that you can turn on and the magnet will bind oxygen tightly. It's a strong magnet. Or you can turn the electricity down and it becomes a very weak magnet where it lets go 
of a lot of the oxygen. That's basically the way hemoglobin works and how it shifts with temperature and pH. As uh, temperature and pH change, that magnet can be turned on or turned off, the hemoglobin magnet. In other words, it can have a higher affinity for oxygen or hemoglobin can have a lower affinity or attraction for oxygen. And I don't have these next things memorized. I walk through in my brain exactly the way I'm gonna describe it to you to know which way the curve shifts based on a change uh, in temperature or pH. And the way I do it is I think of the lung and I think of the skeletal muscle. And when you start with temperature, think of it this way. When we are in the skeletal muscle, do we want the hemoglobin to hold on to oxygen tightly or let it go when we're in skeletal muscle? Well, the answer is we'd want it to let go. And how the curve shifts to let go is it would shift to the right. If the curve shifts to the right, that means that any PO2, SAO2 is lower because the hemoglobin magnet is weaker. It's let go of some of that oxygen. Now, if that's what we want to happen in skeletal muscle, let's think about temperature and pH. What happens in skeletal muscle? Well, temperature compared to the lung is higher in skeletal muscle because it's metabolically active and pH is lower, it's more acidic. So it turns out that that's exactly the way the curve responds is to exactly what the metabolic situation is in the muscle with temperature and pH. So as temperature rises, as pH falls and becomes more acidic, the curve, oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifts to the right the hemoglobin magnet lets go of oxygen, so the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen is lower, and SaO2 at any given PO2 is lower. Now let's talk about the lung. When you think about the lung, do we want the hemoglobin magnet to be strong or weak? We'd want the hemoglobin magnet to be strong. In the lung, we want hemoglobin to bind onto oxygen really well and hold onto it tightly. So which way the curve has to shift to do that is the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve has to shift to the left. And that means at any given PO2, you're gonna have a higher saturation, meaning the hemoglobin magnet is stronger. You're gonna have a higher, hemoglobin's gonna have a higher affinity for oxygen. You're gonna have a higher saturation at any given PO2. Now compared to skeletal muscle, what happens to temperature and pH in the lung? Well, the temperature is cooler in the lung and you, you're really not producing acid in the lung the way you are in the muscle, so pH is higher, less acidic. Uh, so at a lower temperature and at a higher pH, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifts to the left, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen goes up, saturation in a given PO2 goes up. Right. If you change PO2, like going to altitude, you don't shift the curve left or right. You just kind of move up or down that curve based on whatever the PO2 is. So those are key things in, the, in terms of transport of CO2. It's really remarkable how the body works in terms of hemoglobin being really attracted to oxygen in the lung where we need to load it up. And then when it gets to the muscle, we need hemoglobin to turn off and let it go. And that's exactly what happens. Quite remarkable how that works. All right, transport of CO2 in the blood. CO2 can be transported in the blood in three forms. Uh, it can be dissolved in plasma because CO2 is um, much, much, much more soluble 
20 to 25 times more soluble in uh, plasma. Uh, you can dissolve it that way in about 10% of the CO2 you transport from the muscles back to the lung in that manner. You can also convert it to bicarbonate. If you take CO2, combine it with water, there's an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase that will convert that CO2 and water into a hydrogen ion and a bicarbonate ion. And then that bicarbonate gets transferred in the blood back to the lung. And when you get to the lung, surprise, surprise, the reaction runs exactly the opposite way. You pull that bicarbonate out, combine it with a hydrogen ion to make CO2, and you breathe it out. And about 60% of the CO2 uh, that you transport from the muscles or from the body to the lung is transported that way. Last one is called carbamino compounds, and that is where uh, the uh, CO2 is actually uh, attracted to some, if you think about the proteins within hemoglobin, these protein ends sometimes have positive and negative charges on them. And it turns out the CO2, even though it's not polar, the positively charged uh, carbon uh, ion or atom can replace one of the uh, hydrogen ions that is kind of bound to one of the negatively charged protein ends. And so it, it's not really binding. It's not binding to the iron on hemoglobin. It's just binding to the protein, the, the silly string part, and being transported that way. And about 30% of the CO2 that you transport is done that way. All right, last thing we need to talk about is control of ventilation. And how ventilation is controlled is by uh, the respiratory muscles are innervated by neurons that come from the respiratory center in the medulla of the brain. And so the respiratory center is going to regulate both frequency of breathing and tidal volume. And it has a portion that controls the inspiratory center and the expiratory center. And overall, this respiratory center is going to respond to three things. It's going to respond to neural factors, neural inputs. It's going to respond to chemical factors, and it's going to respond to temperature. So an example of a neural factor is within your muscles and joints, you have things called mechanoreceptors and proprioceptors. And basically what they are is they're, uh, if you will, motion sensors. And as you move the muscle, it sends a signal to the brain and it says, hey, we're starting to do some muscular work. You might want to increase ventilation to meet the metabolic need of what we're going to have down here in the muscles. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, the other thing in reverse happens in the lung where you have what are called stretch receptors. And basically, if the lung hyperinflates, if you overstretch the lung, there are um, nerve inputs that go to the respiratory center, afferent drive that just says, hey, you need to uh, relax the diaphragm, relax the intercostals, and breathe out. That's neural factors. Uh, chemical factors is really interesting. So you have specialized cells both in your brain and in what's called your carotid bodies and your aortic bodies. We call those the peripheral chemoreceptors. And these are specialized tissues that are located in the carotid arteries in your neck and the aorta uh, coming out of your heart. And these specialized cells are responsive to changes in PCO2, in PO2, and in pH. So as those things change, as PCO2 goes up, as pH goes down and gets more acidic, as PO2 goes down and you become hypoxic, the response is it stimulates the inspiratory center for you to breathe more. 
Now, there is a difference between the chemoreceptors in the brain and the peripheral chemoreceptors in the carotid bodies and the aortic bodies. The central chemoreceptors in the brain are only responsive to PCO2 and pH. The peripheral chemoreceptors in the carotid body and the aortic arch are responsive to PCO2, pH, and those uniquely respond to PO2. And temperature is the last one, and it turns out that temperature has a direct stimulatory effect on the respiratory center. So as the body heats up, like with exercise, that says, hey, we're doing exercise, we're getting warmer, you might want to breathe more, and that's exactly what happens. So what's the main purpose of breathing during exercise? A lot of people would normally say it's to get more oxygen into the blood, and that is not the primary function of the respiratory center. It is not to get more oxygen into the blood. Uh, unless you're at altitude or unless you have a pulmonary disease, you do not breathe more at rest or during exercise to get more oxygen in the blood. If you're a normal, healthy individual at or near sea level, the reason you breathe more during exercise is to tightly regulate PCO2 levels and blood pH. Uh, arterial PO2, the oxygen levels, are a very minor consideration. Now, how does ventilation affect pH? Well, it turns out that you can control the pH of your blood through three things. One of them is called a chemical buffer, one of them is ventilation, and the last one is your kidney. So chemical buffers are things like bicarbonate, uh, hemoglobin with those negatively charged proteins on the end uh, of, of the hemoglobin molecule, uh, phosphates are another example. These things can all bind with hydrogen ion and pull it out of the blood. Um, and I kind of call the chemical buffers the first line of defense. That's my term. Uh, you won't see it really written anywhere else. I call it the first line of defense only because it's present right there in the muscle. So it can react right away at the site where the hydrogen ion is being produced in the muscle, uh, react with it, and help to control pH kind of instantaneously. Um, the next way you can control pH is with ventilation. And the ventilatory buffer works by increasing ventilation and blowing off CO2. And when you blow off CO2, it causes a reduction in hydrogen ions. This is due to what's called Le Chatelier's principle. And if you remember that from your chemistry, it says that when you have a reaction in equilibrium and it's disturbed, the reaction will run in a way to deal with that disturbance. So if you think of the equilibrium of CO2 plus water gives you hydrogen ion and bicarbonate, if you, that's typically an equilibrium. So if I pull CO2 out, what's gonna happen is that reaction is gonna to run to the left and you're gonna combine hydrogen ion with bicarbonate uh, to kind of create, replace that CO2 that you blew off. So you'd be reacting hydrogen ion with bicarbonate. So you're basically pulling that out and that would uh, reduce the hydrogen ions in the blood. So to give you an example, if you're at rest and you were to just start hyperventilating at rest and double your ventilation from let's say 10 liters a minute to 20 liters a minute, your pH would rise from 7.4, which is a normal pH, to 7.63. Same thing in reverse. If at rest you kind of held your breath and cut your ventilation in half, your blood would become more acidic over time. It would go from 7.4 to 7.17. And that's because the, ma the magnitude of the ventilatory buffer is big time. 
Ventilation is the primary way you control the pH of your blood. It's worth about twice of all the chemical buffers combined. Now the last buffer you have is, is the kidney, and the kidneys can excrete hydrogen or bicarbonate to regular pH to regulate pH. The problem is it's, it's very time consuming. The kidney reacts very late in the process. It's very slow to do. So they're kind of the last line of defense. In people who have respiratory disease, oftentimes their kidneys are hugely overworked because they're trying to make up for what the lung can't do. Now how clinicians often try to determine the effect of changes on PCO2 bicarbonate and pH is to use Davenport diagrams. And uh, you, should be, you should look that over. Um, you know, don't, don't spend a ton of time on it, but just have an idea of how if I change PCO2 or change bicarbonate, how those things would end up changing and regulating pH. All right, so again, control of ventilation is really focused on during rest, the chemical state of the blood. During exercise, it becomes a little bit different where now you kind of get this neural response at the beginning of exercise. You see this huge rapid rise in ventilation before you have any change in the chemical state of the blood. And then once you hit a steady state, you might see a very gradual rise in ventilation and that's due to chemical and temperature uh, effects. Now I spent a little bit of time talking about ventilatory control uh, during rest at altitude. And it's a unique situation where when you go to altitude, the barometric pressure falls, the partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere falls, and the amount of oxygen that gets into your blood, your saturation uh, falls as well. And again, that's going to be sensed by the peripheral chemoreceptors located in the carotid bodies in the neck and in the aortic arch. And it turns out that those peripheral chemoreceptors uh, between individuals have different levels of sensitivity. In some people, the chemoreceptors are super sensitive, meaning the oxygen levels fall just a tiny bit, and the response is to have this huge increase in ventilation uh, as a result. Other people, saturation of oxygen in their blood falls, and they barely notice it. They barely change ventilation at all. And it turns out that whether you have a, we call that the, hyp the hypoxic ventilatory response. And it turns out whether you have a strong or a weak hypoxic ventilatory response can have an effect on exercise performance at altitude. And as an example, if you, in people who are climbing, let's say really high mountains like Mount Everest, you really need to, uh, use ventilation, be able to ventilate at a high level to try to defend and get as much oxygen in the blood as possible at those extreme altitudes. And it turns out if you have a really high HVR, if when your saturation falls, you crank ventilation up a lot, turns out you're a little more successful in terms of how high you can sleep at altitude before you get altitude sickness and how high you can end up uh, climbing. People with low HVRs uh, really have a problem climbing those high altitudes. So you may think, well, shoot, that sucks. If I wanted to climb Mount Everest and I have a low HVR, is there anything I can do about it? Well, it turns out that exercise training itself is not believed to change it. So if I measure your HVR and it's low and I train you for six months and then I measure HVR again, it's probably going to be exactly the same. It's really not going to change with training. And what's really interesting, so, so it's kind of like a genetic trait, essentially. And what's really interesting is that um, if you look at endurance athletes as a whole, uh, 
compared to non-athletes, endurance athletes tend to have low HVRs. And the question is, is that an advantage? And the answer is maybe. <laughs> it might be an advantage because that means during exercise, those individual athletes might breathe less. And if you're doing an endurance exercise bout and you're not breathing a lot, you don't necessarily feel like you're working that hard. If you're breathing a ton, then you get this signal back to the brain, we call it dyspnea, where you don't like it and you think you're working really hard. And so people with low HVRs may not be affected very much by being a distance athlete. So we don't know if it's a chicken or an egg thing. We don't know if because you have a low HVR, you're naturally attracted to doing endurance events, or maybe if you do endurance activity throughout the growth stage of your life through puberty, that maybe that makes your HVR uh, be a little bit lower because there's not a lot of data in children on it. Um, they've done studies where they've looked at twin pairs and they tend to have HVRs that are very close to one another, uh, suggesting again, it's a genetic predisposition. Uh, they've also done studies where they've looked at athletes and non-athletes. And again, the athletes have a lower HVR. And then what they did is they took siblings and relatives, parents of the athletes who were uh, not athletic themselves and you would think they'd be more like the untrained people, have a high HVR. Turns out, no, they were more like their, uh, their siblings or their offspring who were athletes and had the low HVRs. So again, it appears that genetics kind of drives the sensitivity or peripheral chemoreceptors. That can have an effect on exercise performance, particularly at altitude. All right, again, I apologize. That was another 42-minute one, but hopefully this is helpful. If it is, do me a favor. Send me an email. Let me know. I'll keep doing these for the remainder of the class. Good luck on the exam.